Ready? Born ready. your favorite political podcast. I'm your host, Saba Long. Thank you, thank you, thank you for tuning in and being part of the show today. I hope you had a wonderful Juneteenth. Uh, For those who are fathers or father figures, a wonderful Father's Day. Uh, We've got, as always, a great show for you, and we're going to dive right in. All right, so we, you know, we like to start with what's happening in local politics. So we are going to talk about, first up, uh, the AJC just started this big investigative series called Dangerous Dwellings. It's out right now. It's completely worth your time. They put a team of about 20-something staffers on this project, including, again, some of their top investigative reporters. Uh, here are some key findings from this uh, multi-part series. First up, there are more than 250 apartment complexes in Metro Atlanta that are considered as, quote, persistently dangerous. And 162 of these more than 250 apartment complexes account for one in every five homicides. At least three quarters of these apartments are owned by private equity firms or by investors who don't live here. We've talked a lot on the podcast about housing and the fact that a lot of Wall Street investors have purchased properties in Metro Atlanta. 97% of the properties are in districts where there is a majority minority population. Um, And across these different apartments, police have fielded about 15 calls per day over the past five years. Maybe this is a surprise. Um, It certainly should not be the norm. Y'all have heard me talk about Forest Cove. Uh, Forest Cove is a Section 8 apartment complex not far from Cop City. Residents at Forest Cove are finally being moved out. Um, But unfortunately, that's happening only because the city of Atlanta is leading the effort to find these families some decent living. So imagine... Forest Cove, but again, across the region, more than 250 apartment complexes. Uh, Let me just give you a quick little update also on what's going on with Forest Cove since we're in this vein. So at the Forest Cove apartment complex, you've got families that, you know, you see in their apartment units that they're missing insulation. And think about how hot it has been over the past couple weeks. And then think about the winter and just how cold it can get here. And so that makes a big difference in how comfortable it is to live in that apartment. They have got toilets that don't work. Um, You know, in Forest Cove, the tenants did a rent strike and they said, we are not paying you, the company, uh, Millennia, who owns the complex, we're not paying you to live in squalid conditions. Like a lot of these companies that the AJC looked at, these are folks um, who are likely on Section 8, which means that Those companies are getting guaranteed money from the United States government. Uh, And again, just to give you a sense of the issue just at Forest Cove, the city of Atlanta is coming out of pocket to the tune of $9 million to relocate these families. 
Now, the owner of Forest Cove, Millennia, has to pay the city back. But this just gives you an idea of just how broken the issue is where the government is having to take the lead because of the incompetence of the private sector. So that's when legislation should come in and city governments should be able to enforce laws that hold companies like this accountable. Uh, This is important to not only protect the city uh, from having conditions where you have to have code enforcement called out, you have to have the police called out, but it also protects the consumer, the renter, from having to deal with a greedy absentee landlord who does not seem to care about the conditions of the people who live there. Uh, Another thing in the housing front, I mentioned maybe a month or so ago that Mayor Andre Dickens announced that he's putting together a housing strike force to address affordable housing challenges in the city. And now uh, he apparently is doing a national search for someone to lead that strike force. In years past, Atlanta had what's called a chief housing officer. The position has been vacant since, I believe, like December or so of 2020. Um, So those are two big positions in the housing space that the mayor is doing a national search for. Someone to lead the housing strike force and someone to be the chief housing officer. I don't know if it makes sense to have this be two different people. Um, It seems like the chief housing officer could also be the person to oversee the strike force or even have... The person in charge of the strike force being someone who reports to the chief housing officer. Regardless, they're hiring someone. They're trying to find this person in about a month's time, which is a very aggressive goal. Um, And it's not quite clear on how soon they'll be able to hire the chief housing officer. So stay tuned for that one. If you are listening to us on Tuesday, launch day, that you know today is the final day of voting in the primary runoff. During the primary, about 800,000 people voted early, Uh, but so far in the primary runoff, less than 200,000 people have voted early. That is a significant difference. We'll see what happens today. You've got four statewide candidates on the Democratic side who were in the runoff. Obviously, the big question is, will Stacey Abrams' picks all win their runoffs? Uh, It's certainly possible. Uh, But it's very hard to tell what's going to end up happening because the early voting numbers are so low. So I haven't done an analysis of who has actually voted early. So I can't say with any certainty that all of her picks are going to win. So there are also a couple of big congressional runoffs at the local levels and key parts across the state. You've got the DeKalb Commissioner District 2 runoff. uh, The Augusta Mayor's Race is in a runoff. You've got 10 state house seats on both the Democratic and Republican side where there are runoffs. And then you've got one state Senate seat on the Republican side where there is a runoff. After tonight, all eyes are obviously going to be on November. I think the three big races folks will be looking at, uh, you know, number one, can Stacey beat Kemp uh, for the governor's seat? Two, will Warnock remain in the Senate or will Herschel prevail? And then three, will Republicans show up for Brad Raffensperger? Now, of course, there are also other important races like attorney general, but those are the three that I believe will get the most statewide attention and national attention. So speaking of the governor's race, Stacey Abrams is proposing a $1.6 billion plan to increase the starting salary for Georgia's teachers. 
So she wants to take them uh, about 11,000 increase in their current base pay. So when Ken first ran for governor, uh, he also campaigned on increasing teacher salaries by $5,000, and he actually did it. Uh, that final increase was just put in place, I think, like in the past couple of weeks. So the Georgia Association of Educators has endorsed Stacey Abrams. Now, this group is not necessarily a fan of Governor Brian Kemp, uh, especially kind of given with what happened in the Georgia General Assembly this last year. You had things like the Parents' Bill of Rights, critical race theory, all of that. Now, why is it that Kemp and now Abrams are both pushing to pay teachers more? Is it for votes because they offered these in election years? Yes, maybe, but it's not just that. In 2015, the, the Georgia Department of Education did a survey and they found that 67% of teachers said they would not recommend to their students to pursue a career as a teacher. Huge problem. So in response, they created what was called a teacher burnout task force. Now, that 67% number, again, that was in 2015. That was before the pandemic. That was before Zoom school and debates about masks. That was before debates about what could be read in school, what books, how to talk about things like LGBT issues, all of that. So this year, the Professional Association of Georgia Educators, they just conducted a survey and found that nearly one-third of Georgia teachers plan to quit or retire in the next five years. Huge problem. Again, I think both candidates recognize that. And I suspect we'll also be hearing a lot about this in the state superintendent's race as well. One last thing I should mention about Stacy's proposal to increase teacher salaries is that she plans to do this without raising taxes and without an additional fee. Uh, she believes that she'll be able to do it within the current budget. All right, on to another statewide candidate that we hear a lot about, Herschel Walker. So I joked on Twitter last week that Pusha T is doing APA research for the Warnock campaign. So we all know about Herschel Walker's son, Christian, who's a very outspoken Republican and college student and uh, active in the LGBT community. So it came out last week that Herschel has three other kids by three different women. And the youngest, I believe, is around 10 years old. So why is this a big deal? A couple of reasons. Uh, Herschel talks a lot and has in the past about absenteeism and fatherhood and how the lack of a core family unit is a serious problem, particularly in the black community. Uh, but then we go on to find out that he has four kids from four different women. And then the other thing is that Herschel, as I mentioned last week, often leads with Christianity in his faith. So when you hear Herschel talk about his faith and quote Bible verses, it makes you wonder, is he just virtue signaling? My prediction is that it won't matter to evangelical Republican voters. Let's not forget Trump is a twice-divorced philanderer who can't name a favorite Bible verse, and yet he overwhelmingly had the support of evangelical voters and still does. Um, so we'll see what continues to happen on the road to November. But for now, I don't think this really hurts Herschel. On to a big thing that happened uh, last week, the latest on the January 6th committee. So when we taped last week's episode, 
There have been two more hearings since then, and there's two more hearings happening this week. There's one today, Tuesday, and another one on Thursday. There's a lot to unpack here, so let me just give you some of the highlights. The people testifying in these hearings are overwhelmingly Republicans. You have Trump's family, so Ivanka Trump, his daughter, and Jared Kushner, Ivanka's husband. Trump's campaign manager, Trump's lawyers, and these are both White House attorneys and campaign attorneys. Mike Pence, the vice president, his White House lawyers, and his staff. You have the former political editor of Fox News. So again, these are all overwhelmingly strong Republicans. The big question is, what did Trump know? When did he know it? Trump knew he lost the election. His people told him repeatedly that there was no amount of fraud that was materially significant, but he still pressed on. And he also decided to fire or completely ignore and ice out the people who did not tell him what he wanted to hear. So what he did instead was bring people into the fold that would tell him what he wanted. Chief among them was John Eastman, who is a private attorney. You heard a lot about him over the hearings and you'll continue to hear about him. Eastman authored a memo that said Mike Pence as vice president could block the certification from the Electoral College. Now, by the way, Eastman admitted that if this had gone to the Supreme Court, they would have lost. And then, of course, as this thing went on, he asked for a presidential pardon. Uh, He invoked his Fifth Amendment right when questioned about his memo to the tune of 146 times. So again, what did Trump know? When did he know it? He knew the mob had breached the Capitol and he did not take action. He knew that they were coming after Mike Pence and he did not take action. In fact, an informant in the Proud Boys, which is a domestic terrorism group, said that they would have killed Mike Pence and Nancy Pelosi if they had the chance. And this committee and the ongoing conversations has been really remarkable. Uh, Georgia has actually played a big part in these hearings and investigation. You might recall the Georgia GOP joined Trump's lawsuit the day after the election, alleging that ballots were being improperly counted. Now, this was one of many lawsuits that were expeditiously thrown out because they had zero standing. And also in Georgia, we had state reps and state senators who actually wanted Governor Brian Kemp to call a special session to, quote, take back the power to appoint electors. And also uh, last week, former state rep and then Assistant U.S. Attorney General B.J. Pack, a Republican, testified to the committee. He was essentially forced to resign because he would not tell Trump that there was widespread voter fraud in Georgia. Today at the hearing, we'll hear from Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger and his right-hand man, Gabriel Sterling, again, two Republicans. Just to refresh your memory, take a listen to what Gabriel Sterling, who was essentially the COO of the Georgia Secretary of State's office, take a listen to what he said at a press conference on December 1st. Just to give y'all a heads up, this is going to be sort of a two-part press conference today. And at the beginning of this, I'm going to do my best to keep it together because it has all 
gone too far. All of it. Joe DeGeneva today asked for Chris Krebs, a patriot who ran CISA, to be shot. A 20-something tech in Gwinnett County today has death threats and a noose put out saying he should be hung for treason because he was transferring a report on batches from an EMS to a county computer so he could read it. It has to stop. Mr. President, you have not condemned these actions or this language. Senators, you have not condemned this language or these actions. This has to stop. We need you to step up, and if you're going to take a position of leadership, show some. My boss, Secretary Raffensperger, his address is out there. They have people doing caravans running their house. They've had people come onto their property. Trisha, his wife of 40 years, is getting sexualized threats through her cell phone. It has to stop. This is elections. This is the backbone of democracy. And all of you who have not said a damn word are complicit in this. It's too much. Yes, fight for every legal vote. Go through your due process. We encourage you. Use your First Amendment. That's fine. Death threats. Physical threats. Intimidation. It's too much. Now, a reminder that the insurrection took place on January 6th. Listen to this. Wow. There are a lot of people we still haven't heard from. Of course, Donald Trump himself, Mike Pence, Steve Bannon, Mark Meadows, who at the time was the president's chief of staff, Jenny Thomas, the wife of the Supreme Court Justice, and those are just a few names. Now, someone asked me if anyone was going to end up going to jail because of all of this. That's not up to the select committee. They cannot bring criminal charges. That's up to the Department of Justice. Now, the DOJ has requested testimonies and transcripts from the hearings and those interviews which are all being conducted under oath. Now, I've got to say, the one person watching this who just has to feel like his chances of getting to the presidency are improving by the minute is Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. DeSantis has already raised a shocking $100 million for his reelection campaign. Now, just to compare, we're in June and Brian Kemp has raised about $10 million. Oh, and by the way, last week, Elon Musk tweeted that in 2024, he's leaning towards supporting DeSantis. So I think, again, what it really, the winner of the January 6th hearing is really going to end up being Ron DeSantis. All right, now on to our favorite part of the show, party poopers and party starters. Turn out the lights, the party's over. The party is over, close the gates. What? All right, party's over, everyone go home. Are you sure you wanna invite this party pooper to poop on your party? I'm the party pooper. So this week's party pooper was relatively easy to pick. It is none other than Eric Rydens, who you might not have heard of, but he's running for U.S. Senate out of Missouri. 
he just put out an ad where he's dressed in jeans and like a sports button down, kind of like those Columbia shirts that you wear outside. And he has what looks like a radio on his hip and a very large rifle in his hand. And he says, we're going rhino hunting. But he's not talking about the animal. He's talking about Republicans in name only. Then a SWAT-like looking team in tactical gear busts down the door of an empty house. And this is all in his commercial. Take a listen to this ad. I'm Eric Greitens, Navy SEAL. And today we're going rhino hunting. The rhino feeds on corruption and is marked by the stripes of cowardice. Join the MAGA crew, get a rhino hunting permit. There's no bagging limit, no tagging limit, and it doesn't expire until we save our country. Now, Greitens was previously the governor of Missouri, and he resigned to avoid impeachment. Uh, and also, he had an affair with his hairdresser that became public. Just this year, his wife filed an affidavit accusing him of physical abuse. Uh, some Republicans have started to distance themselves from him. But in the aftermath of January 6th, when you've had attacks on the country, when you've had Supreme Court justices uh, be threatened, when you've had members of Congress be threatened, this type of language and behavior is absolutely insane. I don't think there's any dispute as to why I've made him this week's party pooper. What's rule number one? Party. All right, on to the party starter. I've got two actually this week. Uh, first up, um, I'm hoping, I'm trying to be optimistic here. Uh, Republican and Democratic senators are meeting behind closed doors to figure out a compromise on gun access. You've got these talks that are being led by Senators Chris Murphy out of Connecticut, John Cornyn from Texas, and then Senators Kristen Sinema from Arizona and Tom Tillis from North Carolina. So you got two Democrats and two Republicans who were leading an effort to find some bipartisan compromise on gun access. And they just might be getting somewhere. Um, we'll see what ends up happening. There's going to be some legislation at some point. I think the question is just how soon will it happen and what exactly will be in the legislation Will they be able to close what's called the boyfriend loophole? Uh, will they require additional background checks on folks 18 to 21 who want to buy guns? I, I think, honestly, I imagine that they would be targeting, uh, you know, kind of moderate to conservative mothers, right, to help them push forward and, and advocate on behalf of this kind of legislation. You know, John Cornyn spoke at the Texas GOP convention, which took place over the weekend, and he tried to talk about this and was actually booed. Uh, but I think because he's just kind of an entrenched Republican in Texas, 
who's not up for re-election right now, he'll still stand his ground and um, push for what he deems to be some type of sensible uh, gun access legislation. All right, my other party starter is Judge Ludic. I've talked about the January 6th hearings. So he is the very conservative retired judge who testified during last Thursday's committee hearing. He's the one, if you were watching, who spoke very slowly and methodically. Uh, and it was kind of a bit of a joke on Twitter. Uh, but he explained after the fact that he had written and memorized much of what he planned to say. And so he wanted to be very precise in his language. John Eastman, who I referenced earlier and who was the architect of Trump's attempted coup, he actually once clerked for Judge Ludic. And so I think that also helped explain why the judge approached the hearing the way that he did. And by the way, another person who once clerked for Ludic is Ted Cruz. So in his opening statement, literally the first sentence, Judge Ludic said, and I quote, A stake was driven through the heart of American democracy on January 6, 2021, and our democracy today is on a knife's edge. He also went on to say that if Pence had done what Trump asked, and again, a quote here, America would immediately have been plunged into what would have been tantamount to a revolution within a paralyzing constitutional crisis, end quote. Judge Ludage went on to completely excoriate members of his own party, he is a Republican, for how they treated the aftermath of the January 6th insurrection. He also called for the party to reconcile their actions with the American people. Take a listen to a snippet of an interview that he gave to NPR after the hearing. The January 6th hearings are, are clearly important for the country to understand what happened on that day and why it happened. And I know you feel that way, but many Republicans do not. Um, they call the hearings an effort to divide. And so I wonder whether you think they're more likely to bring closure or, or to sort of further fuel this division that you say is destroying our, our democracy. We cannot have in America either political party behaving itself like the Republican Party has since the 2020 election. As long as that continues, then we will have an unstable democratic order in the United States and we will forever be fighting over American democracy. If the two parties cannot agree to uh, the orderly transfer of power in the United States, then that war will continue. And as long as it continues, we do not have democracy in the United States. So... When a very conservative, deep red former judge who worked for Reagan and was appointed by Bush once is telling his party that they've gone off the rails, that is a big, big deal. Uh, and because of the sincerity and gravity with, of what he said, he is without a doubt uh, a party starter. And I hope that the Republican Party takes note. Uh, but time will indeed tell what will happen. All right, y'all, that is today's show. There was so much more that we could have gotten into. It has been a very much a hectic week in American politics at the local level, at the state level, at the national level. Uh, there's a lot we didn't get into, but this just gives you a little overview on what's happening 
in the world and what you should be paying attention to. Come back next week where we'll break down who won in the primary runoffs. And then, of course, our Who Wins Georgia series is going to start soon. Thank you, as always, for tuning in to Where the Party At, your favorite political podcast. If you have something that you want us to talk about, you want to react to anything that you heard on this episode or a previous one, don't forget to leave a voice note. You can also follow us on social media. Again, thanks for tuning in. Send this podcast to your friends, to your family, uh, to other folks, and tell them to also tune in. All right, y'all. Have a great week. Until next time.